When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's going on, everybody? Isaac here with Civil Engineering Academy. Jumping on real quick uh, to talk about another fun podcast episode, and I'm excited with uh, to share this one with you, <laughs> if I can even talk. Um, uh, today, I bring Michael Hopper. He's with Lira, who what's a which is a consulting engineering firm, structural firm that deals with structures, and specifically, he specializes in post tension concrete structures. He also teaches at Princeton on this topic. And uh, we just had a fun conversation talking about post-tension structures uh, and um, in all its forms. And I also bring my brother Mark on with us because Mark deals with the construction side of this quite heavily. And I thought it would be fun for all of us to get in the same room and just kind of talk about all these things. Some of the projects that Michael has worked on have been award-winning so uh, he definitely uh, is very heavily involved in this community. And Mark and, and Michael, when they get together, uh, this is their language. They love talking about uh, post-tension structures and, and everything to do with them. So whether you're just starting your structural engineering career or you're, you're deep into it, there's definitely going to be something here that you're going to learn from. And I think you're really going to enjoy it. So uh, thanks for Mike and Mark for joining me today. I think you're going to enjoy this, and it's coming up right after this. All right, Mike, how's things going? Welcome to the Civil Engineering Academy podcast. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to, to be here with you. Uh, we haven't really done uh, three people here before, so this is fun. I want to bring my brother Mark on, too. Um, Mark's hey, everybody. Heavy <laughs> in the construction world, and uh, he's excited about what you do and what you have going on. So um, I guess before we, we dive into things, though, um, could you just give us a little bit more about your own background and how, how you found yourself into what you're doing now every day? Yeah, sure. I'd, I'd be happy to. Um, I guess if I start back at the beginning, um, I was always very interested in architecture and in building as a kid. And uh, as like most engineers, I was pretty good at math. Um, so that led me to pursue the technical side of architecture, where I went to Penn State and studied architectural engineering. And while I was there, I, um, you know, we study uh, structural engineering, construction management, electrical engineering, um, lighting, mechanical design for buildings, and obviously architecture. And I, you know, decided pretty quickly that uh, my heart was in structural engineering and I wanted to uh, spend my career designing world-class architecture uh, with architects. Mm. And so right after, right after school, I, I started my career here at Lira in New York, and I've been here ever since. I've been pretty uh, fortunate to, to have had the opportunity to work on some really unique projects that have post-tension concrete. And I found a niche with that with that system, um, and uh, it really started with uh, a single project. It was a really really unique application of post tension concrete right out of school, 
And uh, that project really made me question everything that's done in a normal post-tension concrete building and, and question every one of those decisions. And uh, it just required us to, to really dive deep into that, into that realm. And, and, and I got a lot of experience in a really, really quick period of time. And uh, it, it, it was a lot of fun. So that, that was how it started. Um, Did you have any influence in your life, a, a father, an uncle, a cousin that was already kind of in this world? So I, did, I didn't, I, I, my dad, um, my dad was in the service. He was in the Navy. So I was a military kid and we, uh, we traveled around quite a bit. My mom's in accounting. Um, I'm an only child. So I didn't have an engineer or an, uh, an engineer who influenced me growing up. But I just loved to build, and my parents really, really encouraged it, and and always pushed me to uh, excel at, at at math and science, and uh, you know just pursue my passions, and and they've been really, really supportive. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I know in my world, Mark was the first one to go into civil engineering, so he kind of paved the way for me to follow. That, that was the path. trailblazer a little bit, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that's what big brothers do, right? Yeah, that's what they do. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Mike, I, I know a lot of people uh, may, at least our audience, may not be into the structural world per se, but they do find what you do, I still think, fascinating. So could you do a little bit of background and explaining what uh, maybe pre-stressed concrete is and how that contrasts with maybe other structural systems? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um so I think it helps to start with the, the really basic fundamentals of just concrete. And, and that is that concrete is great in compression and, and not so great or terrible in tension. And the concept of pre-stressing is really simple, and it just pre-compresses the concrete uh, so that when you're going to add load to it later, um, the concrete will remain in compression or it will have minimal amounts of tension. Uh, as allowed by the building code. Um, and so so pre-stressing is a really, really practical way to use concrete in its most efficient form, which is in compression with little bits of tension where we're permitted. Um, other structural systems don't really have that, that load offsetting effect. You can mm -hmm. pre-stress steel, you can pre-stress timber, um, but... Um, compared to just reinforced concrete or conventional structural steel or mass timber, um, pre-stressed concrete is, is really the only system that has the, the, the offsetting effects or the load balancing effects, as we call it, um, when you're designing. Excellent. And how does pre-stress and post or pre-tension and post-tension both fit under the same umbrella of pre-stressed concrete? Yeah, that's right. That's a, that's a, that's a good point. Um, ACI does, doesn't really differentiate between pre-tensioning or post-tensioning um, the steel. And, and just to clarify for your listeners, um, we're talking about when the steel is stressed with respect to when the concrete is cast. Uh, and so the concrete doesn't really care how you stress it. Um, so ACI, uh, the code, ACI 318, the code that we use to design building structures, concrete building structures, um, the, the, the allowable stresses for concrete remain the same, whether you're pre-stressed, I'm sorry, pre 
tensioned or post-tensioned. However, there are differences in the allowable stresses in the steel um, as necessary for those, for those different types of systems. Um, so that's how the code looks at it. Um, and really, yeah, that's, that's, it's, it's pretty simple. The way Great answer. Organized. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, can I jump in here a little bit? Isaac? Oh yeah, go for it. Yeah. I, it, in, in the people that I deal with, Mike, I mean, it's, it's a so kind of a source of confusion sometimes because it's pre, you know, it's pre-stress, but then you talk about, you know, post-tensioning and pre-tensioning, um, and the pre-stress is actually uh, that name comes from what you know what you're actually doing to the structural system. Uh, like you had mentioned, you're trying to keep uh, most of the tension out of that cross-sectional area uh, of the structural member that you're you're pre-stressing and keeping everything in compression as much as the code allows. Um, but I've I've found that uh, it's a little bit confusing because I've heard people, you know, they'll they'll say uh, pre-stress when they mean pre-tensioning, and then you know they'll the you know post-tensioning seems to be you know fairly clear, but uh, it's just it's a little counterintuitive, at least with uh, the people that I deal with on a day to day basis sometimes because that term that all-encompassing term pre-stress. Uh, sometimes gets confused with the post-tensioning and the pre-tensioning. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point, Mark, and I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, I, I, I'm a big fan of labels, and uh, I teach at Princeton and, and uh, University in the fall. I teach the concrete design course there to the undergraduate students. And, um, you know, we, we go into pre-stress concrete, and we talk about all the different types of way to achieve the pre-stress and what the pre-stress actually means. And you're just pre-stressing or pre-loading the member before yeah. you're applying your I like, finishes or your, or your like, live loads, yeah. right? Exactly. Like with a, a typical structural member, you if you're building a, a, a structure, whatever that is, there's no stresses in that thing until it either assumes its own self-weight or you actually impose some kind of a live load on top of it, right? Right. Whereas with pre-stressing, we're actually stressing that cross-sectional area to take advantage of the material property. So anyway, right. this right. Yeah, I like to use the term pre-compress instead of pre-stress. That's know, not technically accurate in some instances, but um, but I like to avoid the confusion that you talk about. And yeah. when you're talking to students, to, to young engineers like your audience here, I think it's really important to be clear with the labels that we choose. And, um, you know, maybe the code doesn't always have those names right, but um, the concepts, yeah. are, I think, are really, really important to understand. And I, I love that pre-compression term. That's, that, that is a lot better. That's more intuitive. Sure, sure. Yep. yep. Well, start changing the code. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, use your influence. No, I, I think the code, the code is fantastic. <laughs> the code is great. I just think that... Uh, I think we as as engineers and as a community can do a better job to demystify post-tensioning, pre-stressing, pre-tensioning, whatever you want to call it. I will tell you that that is a concept that as uh, someone who has, has tried to mentor young engineers here at Lyra, that that concept can be, uh, those concepts can be misunderstood. And it's universal across our um, our industry of structural engineers. At least that's my opinion. That's my experience. That's mine too. Mine too. Makes sense.
Well, why don't you give us a sample of where uh, pretension structural concrete is is typically used? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's most commonly used in in precast applications, right? And, and precasters are um, manufacturing hundreds, sometimes thousands of individual pre-stressed members. Uh, the most efficient way to do it when you're building them in a factory like setting is uh, by pretensioning. And and um, to to understand what that looks like, it helps to to see how a precast yard is set up. But I'll try and describe it. Picture a 300 to 400 foot long stressing bed um, that is designed to to cast multiple members members at one time. Um, and at either end of the, that stress that casting bed you'll have an abutment and they will have strands that are attached to those abutments and they'll stretch them out over the three or 400 feet, however long the bed is. They will uh, apply the appropriate level of stress to those strands. They'll all elongate, right? That's the pre-tensioning part. And then they'll come and they'll build that, um, that concrete element around it. They'll, they'll lay all the reinforcement, um, do all the inspections, cast the concrete. And then when that concrete reaches its required strength, they'll release the stress on the abutments um, the tension will be um, transferred from a tension force in the strand into a compression force into the concrete through a mechanical bond between the strand and the concrete. Um, and so so that's that's the way that we most commonly see pre-stressed or pre-tensioned concrete uh, applied. Excellent. And what about post-tensioned structural concrete? Where is that being used? Post-tensioned concrete is uh, most commonly used in the field, right? Where you're, you're building cast-in-place concrete elements. Um, and just to, to, to kind of give you a sense of scale, um, it depends what type of system you're using. But in general, um, the jacking force on a, on a PT strand is equivalent to about the weight of nine or 10 cars, right? That's a massive mm. force. So if you're building up on formwork, up on, you know, up on, on top of a building, um, how do you resist that force? What do you jack against? You can't build an abutment in an efficient manner like you can in a precasters facility, right? So mm -hmm. the most efficient way that we, we, we do it here is we, we jack against the, the face of the concrete. And uh, we wait until the concrete reaches a certain strength, right? And then we go ahead and, and we, we set those jacks and, and pull those strands. Um, the other benefit that you get when, you, when you're building uh, cast-in-place concrete, it's cast monolithically, right? All of your spans, all of your bays are all connected together. So um, we, we really rely on continuity from element to element and, and um, to, to really... Um, capture those benefits you need to drape your strands uh and so if you're if you're laying your strands in concrete before they're stressed they're not straight right we can drape them to whatever profile we want that's beneficial for the structure and so we can get creative and tune them place them where 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 it makes sense um and then and then cast the concrete and then stress those tendons whereas in a, a pre-cast application or pre-tensioned application when you pull those strands they're straight right um, mm -hmm. So you really don't get the benefit of of draping up and down as needed in your structural element. I like it. Good answers. And then, and then, Mike, um, the other element that that sometimes happens with 
pre-tensioning is that strand is like like you mentioned actually bonded to the concrete uh, a lot of the systems that uh, are post-tension there's actually a sheathing that the uh, that the strand is in that uh, lets the strand slide relative to the concrete um, after it's hardened and they they're, they're stressing it they're post-tensioning it um, that strand is is able to slide relative to the to the concrete, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so the stress is really kind of they get transferred into the ends of the the concrete member, if that's a slab or a beam, whatever is being post tension, and then as you say, there's that uh, that drape in the tendon that that lifts up since you know they usually drop that. Um, towards the mid span of, of whatever structural member is being post tensioned, right? Um, so that it can uh, work. You're you're trying to design that to kind of pick up the the dead load or the weight that uh, of of whatever structural element you're working with, the slab or or beam. Typically, those uh, those tendons are designed to pick up pick up essentially the dead load, right? Of, of the system and kind of transfer it into the column. And so uh, because of that pre-stress, it's it, it makes that system a lot more efficient as far as spans, right? Where you can shallow up your depths, right? Uh, and achieve longer spans in a more efficient manner because you're kind of picking up that dead load and transferring it into the vertical, vertical members um, before you're actually putting the structure into, into service um right yeah no that's absolutely right and and um the way i describe it is that um you're right in that we're balancing typically just for the self-weight of the slab or the beam or whatever that element is sometimes it's 80 percent. sometimes we go up to 100 percent. in extreme cases we'll balance more than that um but the way i describe it is the structure feels weightless right it doesn't feel right. the effects of its own self-weight uh, i think about um, I like analogies, especially with my students at Princeton, but uh, the one that I think about for post-tension concrete is if you're out in the rain holding an umbrella. Well, most of the time you, you feel the weight of that umbrella, right? You feel the, the rain hanging, you feel the weight of it, uh, but every now and then the wind will blow, it'll gust, it'll put some uplift effects on that umbrella, and for a moment it'll feel weightless. Like right before you can feel it pulling away, it'll, it'll feel weightless. That's the effect of post-tensioning yeah. on, on a structural element. And, and um, you as the designer, as the engineer, you can control how much uplift uh, you get. And the two tool tools that you have are the force that you put into the element, um, the number of strands, and the drape that you that you pick. So, yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great analogy. I like that. What kind of spans can we get? I'm just curious. I don't design building structures, but um, what kind of spans can you get doing this? Oh, well, you can uh, you can really design anything you want. That's the beauty of post-tension concrete. That's why I, I happen to love it so much is that there's really no no limits to what you can do. If you can form it, you can you can build it. Um, the spans that we that, that from the projects that I've personally designed and worked on, I mean, um, the first project that I told you guys about, the, the one that kicked off my career, that was uh, we had. Um, it was a really special project. Um, 
and we pulled the columns back 30 feet from the perimeter of the building. So we had 30 foot cantilevers all around. And on the corner, the diagonal, that would be a, about a 40 foot cantilever. And then we had clear spans or, or interior spans of up to 72 feet. So that's a pretty, pretty extreme example. Um, wow. But normally, what do you see? Um, you know, residential projects, you might push it up to 30 feet. We have a residential project right now in Washington, D.C. that just topped out and we're, we're pushing that to 50 feet in a residential application. Um, so really, um, you can be quite, quite flexible with, uh, with the spans. Um, post-tensioning gives you a lot of room to, to increase that. Or say you don't want to increase your spans, you can thin up your slab, as Mark said. You can thin up your beams uh, and have a much shallower member and, and save some, some material quantities, which, as we know, um, is, is a good thing money. to do. And it, well, it's money, but also for the environment, too, right? We know mm-hmm. that the, the embodied carbon in concrete construction is, is, um, is, a, is a big deal, right? Yep. 8% of global yeah. emissions, uh, global carbon emissions are due to, to concrete. So uh, the cement production particularly. So anything we can do to, to carve out volume in our building structures, bridge structures, infrastructure is going to help out with, uh, with global warming for sure. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's other technologies that we pair with post-tensioning post-tension concrete. Um, we like to insert voids. Um, we use void formers on our jobs to, to save some additional weight. And there's other benefits that come from that. Um, but yeah, one of the, one of the main benefits of the post-tensioned, uh, concrete or even pre-stressed concrete, is just the, the volume reduction that you get in, in your concrete. And you feel that throughout the rest of your structure, right? Your, your columns are lighter, your footings, um, can be smaller. You put less, uh, stress on the foundations, uh, and so forth. So there's those benefits. There's also, Mark, you probably can speak to this better than me, but the the construction benefits. Um, after you're done stressing your strands in a, in a post-tension concrete application, your your concrete is literally lifting up off of your formwork. You can strip your formwork at that moment. Um, whereas a reinforced concrete system, you need to wait until you achieve a, a higher strength concrete before yeah. you can go strip your your shoring. And also we have less rebar in the post-tension concrete design than a conventional concrete design. So it cuts down on congestion and, and the challenges that can come with that. Hmm. And so Mike, if, uh, if I can insert a comment here now, when you're talking about those longer spans that you've achieved the, in residential applications, that is using these void forms that you're talking about to lighten up the slab. Um, we've used void formers, uh, paired with post-tensioning on two, on two projects in the U S they're the only two projects in the U S that I know of that have paired a void former with post-tensioning. It's not, it's not a very well understood system yet. And I think there's huge potential for it. Um, we haven't used those in a residential application. Um, we've used them for, um, thicker slabs, residential slabs, as you know, are quite thin. Um, but we're able to really leverage the benefit of the void and the post-tensioning and thicker slabs. So we've, we've used them where we have, um, long spans and heavy loads. Okay. It's, uh, it's, it saves money and it saves time. Um, when compared to a beam and slab system, you just build flat formwork, right. um, really simple formwork as flat as simple you can make formwork. it. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's about 50% of your costs in concrete construction, right? Or what? Forms. And have then, you oh go ahead 
No, I was just going to say, and then, and then you lay the PT and lay the voids out and you are casting a, a flat slab versus a up yeah. and down beam. So, yeah. yeah. Which is, which is Nirvana in, in the construction world. If you can make that, that soffit nice and flat everywhere, we, we love that. Yes. <laughs> right. It makes That's it the easy. name of the game. That's the name of the game. Yeah. If you look at all of these projects that, that we've done, the, the, maybe you can share some of these in your show notes afterwards, the, the unique applications of post-tension concrete. Uh, at first glance, they look very complicated, but if you break it down into their simple, simple elements, it's just how can we make this formwork as as flat as yeah. possible? So yeah, and and we we find that about a third of the cost of the structural frame is is attributable to just the formwork, and so if you can streamline that, it uh, it translates into big cost savings for sure. Um, but Mike, what what comparisons have you seen? So as we're talking about being efficient, um, being uh, environmentally sensitive as well, um, you know, we uh, when we uh, look at post-tension concrete, and a lot of times we're making comparisons to uh, comparable structural steel systems, and they're always deeper. The structural system is always deeper than a post-tension system. And it actually, you know, adds to the building skin costs, um, you know, whether you've got glazing and um, all the different, uh, maybe you got, you know, composite aluminum panels or whatever your, your exterior skin system is. Um, we found that post-tension systems save on, on building skin costs. Have you, have you, uh, do, does that ring true to you? Absolutely. Yeah, certainly it does. And, um, you know, you think about not only building skin costs, but that's, you know, obviously the, the typically the two biggest um, cost cost components on the project we see are structure and, and, and the skin and of course mechanical in some instances. But um, so, yeah, if you can create a shallower structure, you're going to save big dollars in the skin. Um, and that holds true to all of your other interior finishes as well. Um, but also your heating and cooling costs um, over the life cycle of the building. Right. If right. You, which if you have which, a shorter building, you are heating and cooling less volume. So it's one of the benefits that the the post tensioning industry has 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 tried to highlight for a while. And that yeah. that might be something that's be, that's that's overlooked right now. Right now, the industry is is really talking about embodied carbon and all of the 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 carbon that's associated with the initial construction. Um, and we know that concrete contributes contributes about eight percent to to the total um, global warming each year. But if you look at the energy that goes into heating and cooling our buildings, it's a lot more than that. Um, right. It's right. A, an order of magnitude of thirty percent. So yeah. Um, so look at the life cycle of an entire building and the heating and cooling costs. Right. Right. More than that's that. Right. Is that your? Well, yeah. That's where I'm going. Is that that we need to be uh, as as uh, as an industry, we need to be, we need to be thoughtful. We need to be holistic about um, how we're approaching this problem and how we're going to solve it. Right. We can't just look at embodied carbon um, because clearly um, concrete systems are, 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 you know, have substantially more embodied carbon than say a mass timber system, but mass timber systems are also in, in some cases, um, other than residential applications are deeper than concrete. And so you're, you're the, not only does cost go up when you're talking about skin, but you're heating and cooling more volume. And um, 
we just need to consider that in, in these analyses that we're doing, these life cycle analyses and and be be smart about it. Yeah. So have you done any formal energy modeling uh, between uh, opposing systems, contrasting systems? We are in the process of doing that right now. We are a SC 2050 signatory firm where um, the Structural Engineering Institute uh, in, in collaboration with, with ASCE um, structural engineers are, are, are now being really mindful about the embodied carbon that, that, that is in our, in our structures and how can we do better, right? That's what we're really about here is, is how can we continue to get better? And we're tracking that data. It's, it's all in progress, but um, we have some folks in house here at Lira that are working on it and have been doing that for a while. And, and, and hopefully we'll have some data to publish soon. Cool. Awesome. That's really neat. Yeah. Um, I guess to kind of round this out, you talked about, uh, some voids. One of the questions we had come up with is about grouting. And sometimes we see where you have grouted or ungrouted post-tension systems. W why, why the difference? What are they used for when we do that? So I'll tell you what my understanding is historically, and then I'll tell you when we use one or the other. Okay. Um, historically, um, grouted systems or bonded systems as the as ACI calls it um, have been used in infrastructure and that is generally because the grout has served as a better um, protector against corrosion so a lot of DOTs will require that you use a bonded system in a in, in bridge applications right um, mm -hmm. where you're outside you're exposed to the elements where as as opposed to a building, when most buildings you're protected, you're in, inside, um, they allow you to go with the unbonded system, uh, which is not grouted, which is the system that Mark described earlier with um, the grease cables inside of the sheathing that are anchored at their ends only. Um, we tend to use um, each of those where they're most beneficial for our particular project. So we've used, now we only do, um, we only do buildings. We're not in the infrastructure world, but uh, we've done buildings with both bonded and unbonded systems. Unbonded is by far the most common um, in the United mm. States. Um, and those systems now are much better than they were back um, back when they were first used, when they, they, they did run into some corrosion issues. Now the systems are fully encapsulated and, and they're greased inside of that. So um, water's not getting into those. Um, but we use bonded um, for a couple reasons in buildings, the first reason is if the global stability of the building has to do with or ha relies upon the post-tensioning. Um, so picture if we have a, lean a leaning column or if we have an arch. We have an arch in a building, uh, the base of that arch, there's a thrust. How do you resist that thrust? We like to use post-tensioning or you know, other things too, but post-tensioning is really effective. Well, if the global stability of the building is dependent upon that, that arch being stable, um, you better make sure that that the post tensioning is well protected and and um, bonded sense. is a way to do that because it acts more like rebar than it's bonded along its entire length. So if you were to cut that tendon in the middle, that load would redistribute. Whereas if it's an unbonded system, if you were to cut that tendon in the middle, the strand is gone because it's not bonded to the system in any way. Right. Um, so that's one instance. The other instance is um, for detailing reasons. So um, bonded systems 
tend to bundle strands together at their anchor points. So you might get four strands and one anchor. You can go all the way up to, you know, 30 strands plus in one anchor. And the beauty of that is that you get all of your PT bundled at one location. So if you have a lot of congestion, say you have curtain wall anchors that are being uh, attached nearby or uh, anything like that, say rebar for other things, other connection points, um, it, it helps to detail detail away congestion. And that's another time that we use it. It's great. Other than that, it's always going to be uh, unbonded because that's more economical. And there's also been uh, research done and it's been proven that, that um, in a progressive collapse scenario, an unbonded tendon is better than a bonded tendon. Um, because mm. if say in a seismic event, if there were to be a slab column joint that failed, those strands can act as a catenary draped over top of the column that remained. Interesting. Um, and I've seen photos of that. Um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's of, the concept. Uh, it wasn't Loma Prieta. Wasn't it uh Northridge earthquake where that, I think, yeah, the photos I've seen are from Northridge. And now the code prescribes that there's at least two tendons above every column. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. They call them integrity tendons and they're super effective. Wow. Well, before I switch gears, Mark, you have any more questions that you would like to ask? (laughs) I know we're up against our, our time limit here a little bit. I could, I could talk to Mike all day long, but. Okay. No, I just uh, I, I'm a, I'm a big big fan of of post tension concrete. I've 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 just seen seen the benefits, um, and it's just it's cool to see somebody else or, or talk to somebody else that, that recognizes a lot of those same things that I've seen. That loves my it career, as much so. as Mark does. Yeah, <laughs> it's cool. That's great. great. Yeah. Well, uh, Mike, last few little questions I'd just love to pick your brain about a little bit is what advice would you have for someone just starting a structural engineering journey, their their journey into this world? Yeah. Um, well, I think structural engineering or well, any real engineering uh, career is, is, it can be very broad, right? The topics can be very broad. You can go down many different career paths. Um, but But my suggestion is to first identify and then focus um, on what you're passionate about. Right? For me, that was that was helping architects um, design world-class architecture. And uh, I figured that out early while I was still in school. And I could actually pick the courses I wanted to take that would help me fulfill that goal. Right? Um, I could choose research projects or my thesis projects could be about that, right? They could be about architecture and structural engineering and integrating the two together in a really thoughtful way. Um, you know, internships that you pick. So um, for me, I'm a big fan of, of identifying your goals early and, and focusing those efforts uh, on them. So that's my advice. Um, ultimately, chase what you're passionate about, but, but really um, identify those goals early and, and, and focus on them. Great. Great thoughts. I totally agree with you. Well, uh, thanks for doing this, Mike. Where can people uh, reach out to if they want to connect with you? Yeah, guys, thanks. This was this was really great to uh, be a part of. I love what you're doing here on the show. I love uh, I love talking about the great work that engineers are doing, and and you guys have a ton of uh, enthusiasm, and and it's really great to see that. Um, but if people want to connect with me, they can find me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find there. Uh, okay. You can, yeah connect with me there shoot me a message we'll point him that way very good 
Well, thanks, Mike. Thanks for doing this. And we'll catch you on another one. See you. Thanks, guys. This is great. Take care. Thank you, Mike. Bye.